Hear God's word from Joshua chapter 6. We'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 27. This is the very word of God. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, then when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, at the dawn of day, And marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house. And bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. 
So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho hardly needs an introduction. From the popular spiritual Joshua fit the battle of Jericho to the Veggie Tales adaptation. This is a well-known story, even to those who have not grown up in the church. This is a remarkable plot. God fought on behalf of his people against the city of Jericho. And there's remarkable obedience by the people of Israel because God gave them clear instructions and they obeyed. But these are just the beginning of the story. Can you imagine being one of those Israelite men armed and ready for battle? One of the 40,000 who passed through the Jordan River ready to take the land that God had promised to Israel. And here in the first battle, you're told to keep silent and march in line for a week. Or can you imagine being a guard on the walls of Jericho, watching these 40,000 men with the presence of their God in the midst of them, marching in silence with the haunting sound of the trumpet leading the charge. What we're going to see today is that God's ways are not our ways. That God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His power is on an entirely different scale than man's power. The wisdom of God is considered foolishness by man. But when it comes down to it, man's so-called wisdom is in fact what is foolish. For Joshua, for Israel, for Jericho and Rahab, they learned the simple yet profound rhythm of the Christian life. Trust and obey and live. Trust and obey and live. We're going to look at the sermon in those three parts. We're going to look at the trust in the Lord, the obedience of the people and the life that the Lord gave them. So let's look at trust. Here comes Israel with very little military experience besides Sihon and Og across the Jordan River. Coming up to a formidable defense, a stronghold, Jericho. And the text tells us in the first verse that it is shut up inside and outside. No one goes out. No one comes in. It's the same shut down lockdown that was in place to try to keep the spies from escaping when they visited Rahab. This is a city designed to defend itself. This is one trained in protecting its people. How is Israel? This wandering horde of people, untrained in military conquest, to come and win this battle. 
it will take an act of God. And it is exactly an act of God that they got. What is it that the people trust? The people of Israel are trusting that God fights for them. Verse 2 reads like this, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. This is the driving force of chapter 6. The Lord has given the whole city into the hand of Israel. If the Lord had not done that, Israel has no chance against Jericho. This sounds a lot like Moses as he led the people of Israel out from the hand of Pharaoh in Exodus 14. Now, this is an important connection because Israel is, in a sense, going through the second exodus, not out from their prisoners, but into the land of the enemies this time. And Joshua, who is the successor to Moses, is being proven as God's leader over Israel. And so what happens in Exodus 14 gives us a glimpse into how Israel views themselves here in Joshua chapter 6. Here's what happens in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That is the God at work to bring his people out of slavery, and that is the same God at work to bring his people into the promised land, even against these enemies that they have no ability to conquer on their own. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We know that from 1 Corinthians And we know that God's power is on such a different level that when he speaks, things come into existence. And when he looks at the earth, it trembles. And when he touches the mountains, they smoke. To whom will you liken me, God says, and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. Man is a vapor. The strongest of human militaries is nothing before God. The futility of of mankind to stand against God is indescribable. In other words, if God is for us, who could be against us? God has given Israel the land and he has given them Jericho. And now it's a matter of watching God's power play out. And one thing that is crucially important that we see 10 times in our passage today is this word ark. Ten times the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is mentioned. Sometimes it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes the Ark of the Lord. Sometimes the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And sometimes it's just called the Ark. But ten times the Ark comes up to remind us that throughout God's presence is there in the battle. He is with his people. He is the one in whom they trust as they go against Jericho. He was with them when they went through the Jordan River. The first obstacle obstacle to this generation. And he showed himself near to Joshua last week with the commander of the Lord's army. And now, his presence is with them again as they go up against Jericho. And it reminds them they're not to trust in their strength. They're not to trust in the strength of any horses or chariots or militaries. They are to trust in their God who is with them, who is fighting for them. I think Joshua's response to the commander of the Lord's army from last week's sermon is a really important pattern for the people of Israel. Last week, he saw God's presence, and what did he do? He took off his sandals, and he fell down and worshipped. He bowed down before his God. He knew his place. 
before the commander of the Lord's army was to worship. And so what do the people do? Well, Joshua led them well. Look at Joshua 6, verse 8. And just, just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark, before the Lord went forward, they obeyed. As Joshua led them, they followed. And so they too are following and trusting God here and obeying what God says and doing what he commands. Joshua may still be without sandals at the start of this passage. He doesn't seem very prepared for war, but the best preparation for a battle is to trust the commander. And as the people proceeded to march around the city, they were doing exactly what the Lord had commanded. And we'll see that with with the priests, which indicate the religious involvement here. This is not just a military action. The the priesthood is also involved here. And with the ram's horn and the trumpets, which throughout the Old Testament are declaring important announcements and victories, and with the marching of the people and with this feast of unleavened bread on which this march was happening, where Israel consecrates herself before the Lord, and with the ark, with God's very presence among them, this is a ceremonial process. This is the people coming and consecrating themselves to the Lord and the Israelites in these seven days of, of, of being away from leaven. They are giving themselves to the service of the Lord. This is a, a worship service of a kind. They march when the Lord says march. And they live in obedience to God's law as he has commanded. As my grandpa told us many times, when I say jump, jump, then ask how high. The Israelites obeyed the Lord, not knowing exactly what would happen, but knowing that the Lord had given them the victory. And with the ark there among them, here's the real power for their battle. The trumpets announce the ark and the blast of the horn signals who is with Israel. And we find that it was indeed by faith that the walls of Jericho fell. It wasn't by sword, because Hebrews 11 tells us specifically, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It's these people who are worshiping and trusting the Lord. It's the faith that brings the victory, specifically not faith itself. It's the one in whom the faith is placed. It's the powerful God who is with them, who has won the battle for them. And they then become the recipients of the victory by faith in him. Jericho, however, was shut up in its defenses. It was closed up. It was locked down, much like the hearts of the king and the people who were there. Their hearts were shut off to the Lord. They had no faith in him. They were seeking to resist him and to set up defenses in their hearts against him even in the presence of the God of all creation. So when we look at the importance of trust in this battle, it reminds us to ask ourselves, do we still have that trust in Jesus? You know, when you first believed in Jesus and you put your trust in him, you acknowledged you can't handle the battle. You need help. The weight of your sin is not something you can handle. The attacks of the enemies are not something you can resist. The temptations that come from without and from within your own heart, you can't conquer without his help. And so when we first believed, we acknowledged we need his power. 
We need his righteousness. We need his compassion. We need Jesus who gave himself. We need the spirit with us. We need the sacrifice of Jesus applied to us in order to defeat our enemies of sin and death. Do you still trust him like that? Is he still the one who fights your battles for you? Or have you tried to take the reins back? Have you let Jesus, your savior, be your savior in some ways, but have you failed to let him be everything to you in every part of your life? Do you admit that the Lord will fight for you and trust him to do so? If so, then you can free yourself not to fight the battle that's already been won, but to draw near to the God who fights for you. Our job then is to entrust our whole being, our soul and our mind and our body to his care. And that happens by worshiping him, by by giving forth praise with our voices and with our minds and with our words and with our hearts and with our time, by being here, by engaging with his word, by listening, by bowing ourselves down. So do we embark on each day's battle against the wickedness in this world and against the schemes of the devil and against the deception that's within us, do we embark on it by trusting God? I want to remind you to be like Jehoshaphat. Maybe you're like, okay, I don't have the confidence of people like Moses and Joshua. Well, listen to how Jehoshaphat put it when he later was leading the people of Judah against three peoples that had come together to defeat Judah. Here's what he acknowledges. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's your job today. You don't have to know what to do. You put your eyes on him. You trust him. For Jehoshaphat, the language in 2 Chronicles 20 is, is rich. It says, the Lord set an ambush against them. How did he do that? What means did he use? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The Lord fought for his people and he fights for you too. Christians, God is your strength. He will fight for you. The battle that we fight in the spiritual places has one victor and it's God through Jesus Christ. And we get to share in that victory. We must trust. And I'm not telling you to trust in some hallmark sense or Hollywood sense of just believe in yourself or just believe. We watched a movie this weekend that was, you know, a very touching movie. And the the whole point of it was, if you just believe, you can become anything. That's not what I'm saying. Trust is a concrete reliance upon who you know God to be. His power that he has proven that you can see work in your life and throughout history. This is the God you trust who has given salvation against spiritual enemies, who has won the victory. It's not vague, it's concrete, and it is hope. As Joshua and Israel trusted the Lord to fight, Christians, I charge you, trust. And you know how the song goes, trust and obey. Let's look at obedience. Obey. Real trust leads to obedience. In fact, you cannot trust somebody and disobey them. Imagine you're on a jungle tour in the Amazon and your tour guide is sharp. He knows his stuff. He's lived there his whole life. He's walked this trail a thousand times and his advice is reliable. But you come to a swinging bridge 
with some broken boards along the way. Some appear rotted, some appear sturdy. This is a high swinging bridge over a creek about 40 feet below, and the tour guide tells you, step on this board, not that board, but you say, oh, but that one looks stronger. What do you do in that moment? Do you trust him or not? Do you obey or not? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we know from the New Testament that faith without works is dead. It's not even faith. For Joshua and the Israelites against Jericho, their command was to trust the Lord and to march. So here they go into battle to march. When you hear battle, you probably think, okay, let's get our weapons ready. These men of battle, again, we've been told there's 40,000 of them that crossed through the river, some of them from Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, who had left their families behind, and they came with the people into the promised land to help fight for the land, to give it to their brothers. But then Joshua tells them, be silent. You're not even going to shout until I tell you to on the seventh day. Surely, at other times, the people of Israel are commanded to fight. But in this instance, obedience is not to fight. Not even to shout, but to be silent. God's commands are not usually intuitive to a natural mind. God's commands have spiritual blessing and benefit that we can't see on our own. Joshua's instructions don't make a whole lot of sense. So I can imagine a hypothetical conversation here. This uh, excited young man is ready to, to conquer. He knows the Lord has promised, and he comes to Joshua and says, all right, all right, Josh, tell us what we're going to do. I'm ready to grab my sword and my shield, my bow and my arrow. I've been practicing. I, I've, I've, been learn- I've been lifting so I can build a siege ramp, and we can take that city by storm. I'm ready for a bloodbath. And Joshua says, actually, no, you're going to march around the city. And so this guy's like, all right, great. We'll attack from the other side. Let's go. Let's go to the other side of the city. Let's march around this thing. And Joshua says, actually, no, we're going to go all the way around. And he says, okay, good. Then, then, then we'll know the, like, where it's weak, and then we can attack, right? And Joshua says, no, actually, you're going to come back to the camp, and you're going to sit down, and you're going to go to sleep tonight. Okay, this isn't what I was prepared for, Josh. What about tomorrow? Joshua says, um, we'll do the same thing tomorrow. What? For six days. And this guy's like, I'm from the tribe of Gad. I left my family across the river. I didn't come here for 5K training. Joshua commanded them to do what God had commanded them. And their trust in him was tested in their obedience. Would they do what he commanded? They were commanded to shout on the seventh day. Their job wasn't to accomplish that victory that God had already won. Their job was to live according to that victory. Because God has already promised them, I have given Jericho into your hand. So what's their response? Is to trust his promise and his salvation and to do what he commands. Like a swim instructor who explains to a child that you can float. Put your ears in the water, put your belly button at the surface, and let go, you can float. And then what does the kid do? But kick and flail 
turn herself over and, and end up needing the help of the instructor right there. Faith is taking God at his word and trusting what he has said, even when we don't quite understand it all yet, because we know who he is. You may notice how, as we've been talking about obedience, I've largely been talking about trust still. And that's because trust is so deeply, excuse me, obedience is so deeply rooted in trusting. You can't separate them because if you know that God has commanded you to obey him, yet you're living in rebellion, and and I can't tell you where you are living in rebellion before the Lord. You know that. The Holy Spirit convicts you of that. And if you continue to live in rebellion against God's commands and you are not living in obedience, you must examine who are you really trusting? Do you trust that his word is good? Do you trust that his commands are good for you and for his glory? Are you trusting your intellect? Are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting worldly kings and kingdoms? Are you convinced that the path to contentment and prosperity is by sin? Are you afraid to give all of yourself to God because you prefer the feeling of having some kind of self-determination? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That is, obey. And he will make your path straight. Israel won because God won for them. The victory came through God's power and through their response of obedience. Read this here in Joshua 6, verses 15 and 16. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now we have to jump down actually to verse 20 to see what happens. It says, the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now's our time to participate, to shout. These shouts were implicitly their declarations that God is king. They had done nothing to knock down these walls. The Lord is the one who powerfully brought down the wall. By their obedience, they were proclaiming in their shouts to all who could hear that God reigns. And their obedience, so far, without even raising a weapon, proves that God was really the one who was fighting, that God is the victor. He is the one who is coming into his land to give it to his people. Now, the author of Joshua is really good at building suspense. The author did it earlier in the book, and he does it right here. You, you notice verses 16, excuse me, 17, 18, and 19 interrupt what actually happened. Joshua said, shout, and oh, by the way, Here's a long explanation about what you're supposed to do once you go in and conquer. Because our immediate response as people is to think, oh, well, if I'm the victor, I'm going to go in and take what's mine. But Joshua makes sure they understand this is not about your glory. This is not about building your kingdom. This is about the glory of God. And so verses 17 through 19 talk about this concept of things that are devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. It's a, it's a term that shows up throughout the Old Testament. And it goes against the natural tendency to think, well, I'm going to go conquer. I'm going to take what's mine. I'm going to enrich myself. 
This is about God's power and his holiness because this whole conquest is actually about sin. It's not about making Israel great. It's about God purging the sin of the Amorites from the lands, from the land. It is now complete. Their wickedness of the people in the land has reached its fulfillment. Their hearts are shut up against God and their actions are abominations to him. This is not about taking their people or their animals or their wealth for human gain, but it's all about devoting it to the Lord for his glory so that wickedness is gone and his name is highest in the land. Something that's devoted to destruction is cursed. Here's what one commentator says. He says, This curse meant that something or someone was absolutely and irrevocably consecrated so that it could not be redeemed. It also meant that the object or the person was sentenced to utter destruction. Both connotations are intended here. Nothing that's left in Jericho belongs to the people of Israel. It all belongs to the Lord because this is the Lord's land. The things of Jericho, of that wicked city, were to be destroyed and killed. The people were not to try to redeem them because they are there to serve one purpose, to show the holiness and the glory of their God. These things that are devoted to destruction are a type of sacrifice and a purification of the land for a land that was filled with idolatry and paganism and godlessness, for a land that had set herself up against the one true God, and God is moving in in power to make it his. What happens if an Israelite disobeys and takes some of the gold for himself? Well, there's a curse that comes upon those who disobey. Verse 18 tells us, But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. That destruction that was to fall upon that um, thing devoted to destruction now falls upon the one who failed to destroy it. If you use God's plundering of Satan for your own glory... As a means to build your kingdom, you have proven that your soul is as spiritually alive as the wicked ones who are dead. In next chapter, in chapter 7, halfway through in verse 10, you see the sin of Achan. Spoiler alert. He took some of the gold. And the curse comes upon him. And we will see that when we get there. So for the Israelites, trust and obey. Listen to the Lord's commands. First, watch the Lord's salvation given to you. And second, deny your desire for selfish gain and seek his glory and listen to his commands. They are good commands. And so before the victory means anything, before you get to verse 20, it's so important that that what is communicated here, that the people must trust with their hearts and be willing to deny their own glory before the victory even means anything to them. The walls of Jericho falling don't mean anything if these people are not seeking the Lord. They must seek first his righteousness and his glory or else they will prove to be as cursed as the pagan who disbelieves in God. And then the walls came a tumbling down and God defeated Israel's enemy for them. This is our job too, Christians, to trust and to obey. Obedience is a blessing. Because this concept of the things devoted to destruction is so prevalent here, we have to realize sin and obedience are at the center of this 
story of this whole book of this conquest of the land. And so I can't actually use this story of Joshua and Jericho to tell you that the Lord is going to help you help you fight against your your difficult boss. Jericho is not an allegory for the things you don't like in this world, for the challenges that you think um, are against you personally. I, I can't promise you that if you trust God in the face of a really hard semester with really bad professors that he's going to give you a 4.0. I can't promise you that. Jericho doesn't represent your occasions or situations in life, nor your difficult boss, nor your professor. Jericho represents sin and wickedness and godlessness. It represents a heart of stone that is walled up against God, against trusting him and against obeying him. This is about God's fight against your truest enemy, Satan. This is about God's fight against your eternal enemy, the devil, who seeks to drag all of us into disobedience and to destroy our souls. And Jesus has, and God has done this through the power of the second Joshua, Jesus. So our job is to trust God through Christ because he's done everything needed to defeat Satan by Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension, and he continues to be with us. And we must obey God's command for Christians. If I were to tell you what does the Lord require, what is God's command for Christians, I'll I'll summarize it the way Jesus did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. The whole moral law that the people of Israel were seeking to follow hangs on those commands. And you know, to obey is really blessed and sweet. A lot of people think the word obey is a bad word. I don't want to obey. It's oppressive. Actually, it's freeing. It's a gift to be able to obey the Lord. Because if you're not obeying the Lord, you are a slave to your sin. And there is no freedom in following your sin. God's law revives the soul, Psalm 19 tells us. It makes the simple person wise. His commands rejoice the heart. They enlighten the eyes. His laws endure forever, and they are righteous altogether. And more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It's a blessed thing to obey, to have the Holy Spirit in us who helps us to hear God's law and to love it and to taste how sweet it is, and to obey. Israel trusted God's promise and obeyed his command. And what comes next? Life. Trust and obey and live. Let's look at life. Because there is life in this whole story. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction and there's a lot of curse here. For Jericho, because of their unbelief and their godlessness, they received what they deserved And God's judgments are final, so much that Joshua gives a curse at the end of this chapter for anyone who tries to rebuild Jericho, who tries to undo God's judgments. That's exactly what happened. A guy named Heel of Bethel in 1 Kings chapter 16 went and tried to rebuild Jericho. And he lost his oldest son and he lost his youngest son because the curse stood. He ignored the Lord's judgment. But there's also curse for Israel and for all because there are faithless people in Jericho and there are faithless people in Israel. I've already hinted at Achan. 
And all those who are outside Israel are cursed for worshiping other gods. All the people, who, the faithless ones who are inside Israel are cursed. And, and we're going to see that death falls upon all those who do not believe because the wages of sin is death. But this life, this life that is promised, it's promised for Israel because they trusted and obeyed and they got to live in the land. God gave them abundant life. And Rahab. Lastly, I want us to focus in on Rahab here as an example of one who receives life amidst judgment. With the judgment all around her, she and her family are saved. This proves to be as theologically important as the destruction of the city here in our chapter. The attention that her salvation receives a number of words is important, and it's also intermingled. It's interwoven with the destruction of Jericho. It goes back and forth. Destruction, life, destruction, life, destruction, life. And it proves that the salvation of God's elect is the counterpoint to the destruction that sin deserves. Where there is destruction with our God, there is salvation. Where there is punishment for sin, there is life for those who believe. Rahab believed. She trusted She had already proclaimed in chapter 2 that Yahweh is the true God when she said, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she trusted Him to deal kindly with her. And she anticipated that God would be her salvation. So she trusted and she obeyed. She dealt kindly with God's men who came into the city. She forsook her worldly allegiances and even to the king who could have killed her, knowing that she was acting in service to the true king who cannot kill just the body, but who has the power over body and soul. And so she opened the window of her house and hung a red cord. And she obeyed by remaining in Jericho in her house with her family, waiting for God's salvation. As the city was shut up, she opened the window of her house. She trusted and obeyed and she lived. We see in chapter 6, verse 25, it says, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she lived in Israel. She has lived in Israel to this day. She got the blessing of victory, of abundance, of being in the presence of God whose Ark of the Covenant is with them, whose presence is with them in the tabernacle and in the future in the temple. God's presence among the family of Rahab. She got life. Although all around her was destroyed, God was her salvation. And that's how it is for you and for me. We live in a world where destruction is coming for all things around us. We, every one of us, is like Rahab, rescued from destruction. The wicked will be devoted to destruction for the glory of God. The curse of sin and death will come to its fullness. And God in His righteous wrath has every right to purge His land of the wickedness that clings to us. But we, like Rahab, have been invited to see God's salvation and to obey and to live. And we are enabled by the Spirit when all the doors and gates of Jericho around us are shut up toward God. We are enabled by the Spirit to open the heart, the window of our heart, to plead that He deal kindly with us because of Jesus. And that Jesus, that Jesus whom we plead, He's the one who took that curse of wickedness. He was the one who in His body on the cross took that curse, our sins were placed upon him and he paid for it. And when he rose victorious from the grave, he destroyed the strongholds of the evil one, strongholds that we've never been capable of defeating ourselves. He's done it. It is finished and we need it.
and he gives it to all who believe. He's the one in whom we trust. We simply receive his salvation and rest upon him. He is the one whom we obey as he commanded us to love God and to love neighbor. And because we love him and because we trust him and because his spirit is with us and enabling us, we can obey him. And what comes from this trust and this obedience? Life. We too are welcomed into the true Israel, into God's presence, into living and dwelling where he is with his people as their God and they are his people for eternity. Psalm 23 says it like this, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What have you done? The Lord is the one who fights. Trust him, obey him, and live with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. That we have hope and we have life, not because of our merit, but because of Jesus. We praise you that you have fought the battle for us. Would we obey? We thank you for your word. Would it go with us, transform us, so that our words and our actions and our hearts would be more like yours as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.